You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series. Assault Studios production. Ruby Heard has come a long way since graduating from university back in 2010. She first started her career as an electrical engineer where she designed electrical and lighting systems for the Tiger Terminal at Melbourne Airport and at Mitcham train station. Her past work here and in San Francisco got the attention of the Designs Futures Council in Australia and she was recognised as an emerging leader in the field of engineering in 2017. Just two years later, she started Alinga Energy Consulting, an engineering consultancy that has a particular focus on the environment and energy accessibility. In this episode, Ruby talks us through the early part of her career after graduating from university and explains what inspired her to create her own engineering company. Ruby Heard, well, we've just discussed your high school and your university. You're now into your career and you have been for a few years. Let's look at the early stages of that, but let's start with environmental sustainable practices. What are the most important for you that engineering firms need to be focused on? Well, I suppose there's two sides to that question. So there's what we do to help our clients in terms of sustainable design and environmental practices, um, and then also what we can do within our own companies. The focus is very much on how do we help our clients be sustainable and then sometimes forgetting about um, our own firm. And now there's such a big push for 100% renewable energy and, and companies to be carbon neutral. And that's, that's so great to see that companies are taking on that responsibility when perhaps government isn't um, always pushing that. So there's, there's great things happening in energy and, and the carbon neutrality space and waste reduction. So when you were working in that environment then and you'd be working with a client, what are the sorts of things you'd be directing them to go and do which weren't necessarily happening behind the scenes for the, the companies that you were working with? Reaching that 100% renewable energy, um, having solar on your own building, yeah, solar hot water, just all of those sorts of things that we would say to our clients, oh, they save money, they have a good payback period but weren't things that we were doing within our own building, um, LED lighting, things like that. What about some of the environmental issues in future? What do you predict they are? I think we've got a pretty good idea and we've had a pretty good idea for quite a while. We just haven't had a feeling of that urgency. In Australia especially, we're just extremely concerned about the temperature rise of the oceans, losing our Great Barrier Reef, acidity of the oceans... I think weather is is going to be our biggest struggle. So more severe storms, more often. That's yeah something that comes up in my work around resiliency is all about how we're going to keep ourselves safe from these things and keep our buildings standing and working. So what do you think the missing piece of the puzzle is there? Because there's people like you who are working in this world. There are people who will protest these things on the street why is there not change happening quick enough? Honestly, I think it's it's just a, a mentality that we've all got in westernised culture. Nobody wants to give up their personal comforts and nobody wants to talk about that as being an option either. So we've gotten to a point now where we're still relying on technologies to reverse everything. We're still saying, yeah, we can just come up with something new that's going to turn this around. But the facts are, if if you read um, certain things that people are writing who are in this space of um, prediction of, of climate change effects and that sort of thing, they're basically saying we're not responding fast enough at all um, and, and technologies are not perhaps going to save us. 
So I think it's it needs to be a compromise that we all make to decide that maybe we can live with a little bit less and we try to combat this consumerist nature that we've developed. Um, so that's something that all individuals need to do and then push that back on companies and tell them, well, we, we don't want to manufacture so much anymore. We want to want to change the way that we live. Um, and then companies will, will fall in line because most of these things are driven by the market and individuals have the power to drive the market. I noticed you mentioned in there that you don't necessarily think technology is going to save us here, but there must be some new emerging trends or technology that can certainly help us. Is there anything you can talk to me about there? There's definitely things that we're doing. Um, so for me, working in the energy space, obviously solar over the last kind of 10-year period has just skyrocketed, taken off. And now we've got battery storage having to come in to kind of balance some of this uh, large daytime generation out that we've created. But, you know, you, you've got to be realistic about that as well, because we're using massive amounts of natural resources to create these things to build solar panels and batteries. And the projections are that we're gonna have just you know, massive amounts of waste at the end of the life of these things because we can't recycle them. We don't know how to do that yet, or we don't know how to do that in a cost-effective way anyway. But we have to be realistic that technology alone is, is probably not going to save us because we're, we don't seem to be smart enough to get in front to build something yet that doesn't have waste associated with it and doesn't have emissions associated with creating it. After university, what was your first job? My first job was with a company called Arup. So they are a big uh, international firm of engineers, designers and architects. About 10,000 people working there at the time, I think. And what was your role? My role was as a building services engineer, but I, I didn't realise that going in, I suppose. I, I was attracted to the fact that I saw wind turbines on their, on their website and I thought that that's what I was going to be involved in, um, in the renewable energy space. But that wasn't the kind of projects that we were winning in that office at that time. Um, so I ended up working in building services. In the course of your work there, did you try and sort of have conversations with some of the leaders saying, can I get myself involved in, in that side of things? Or did you just kind of take the job that was given and didn't ask too many questions? I took the job that was given um, and I just applied myself to it for as long as I could. But there was something always kind of niggling at me saying that that's not what I wanted, wasn't what I wanted to do. So I would have a crisis about every couple of months and, you know, go to my boss and say, what am I doing here? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not saving the world. I'm not doing enough. Talk to me about some of the projects you worked on Why you were there. I kind of started off in the lighting design space. That's where the most work was when I went in. Uh, so I helped the lighting design team with some pretty cool projects. I got the chance to work on the Louvre, uh, the new, newer Louvre in France. What else did I work on? I, I've done all sorts of lighting projects all over Melbourne, many train stations, and did a lot of work at the Melbourne airport as well. You've mentioned a couple of times in this interview that you've spoken about the component of teamwork, but in our first episode where we spoke to you about your high school and your university, you, you said you're a bit more independent. So what do you favour? Do you prefer teamwork or do you like doing things in isolation? Both. I think it depends on what the type of project is. How do you deal with teamwork in the work environment then? Join companies that have really good people working for them as a start um, because there are people out there who do want to coast a little bit. 
Um, I just recently worked with a lady at another company and at the end of the experience, we both said, oh, we've never had such a nice experience where the other person has carried as much of the load as we have. So in that case, it was two really hardworking, determined people who happened to come together on a project um, and, you know, we just blew each other away and it was a really good experience. Uh, so obviously you've learnt those skills. How are they applicable now when you're in a more leadership role? I'm still part of a very small team. It's, it's still just a few of us. So, you know, that doesn't happen as much that I've got people working on projects that I'm not working on. So I'm definitely still involved in the team in that way. I guess when you get to that point of being a boss or, you know, in a leadership role and you're overseeing teams of people that might have those kinds of problems, you can use your experiences from coming up through that, through those types of teams. I definitely wouldn't have people working for me who aren't going to be team players and aren't going to carry their own workload. In terms of leadership, how have you developed your leadership skills? I have done certain courses to, to develop those. There's a lot of courses available. Such as what? What are some of those courses? Variamo Linear Accelerator Program. So that's to help you move through being a startup and a, a leader of a business is attached to that. I also just did the Mindaroo, which is another Indigenous business support system. In terms of developing straight leadership, there is a certain aspect to it, which is kind of an in innate thing that you just have born leadership skills and confidence is part of it as well. Confidence to, to stand up and say, yes, I, I'm willing to put my opinion on the table and, and say that I think it's worth doing. What about, and you just mentioned confidence there being one, what about some of the other skills that go into good leadership for you? Being able to inspire people seems to be a massive. Uh, and the way that you do that is to, you stand behind your values and speak your truth and you know, people can see that and people can tell that you're being really genuine and they're automatically just drawn to that. Some interesting studies about leadership that I, I've read, they're kind of about, you know, school leadership. Um, so being on your school council or whatever, there's some interesting research that suggests that the people who get voted into those positions are not the best people to be in those positions. And so there's the kind of this disconnect between having really good ideas to run something, um, really good ideas that people should support uh, that make your school better or, you know, your society better or whatever scale you're on. Um, and those don't necessarily match up with the skills that you need to get elected into such a position, um, which is things like public speaking and being able to get people to rally. Um, so I think that's always an interesting thing that to me, leaders are those kind of people who lead by example and just inspire movement, but don't necessarily go out there and, and try to get everyone to, to vote for them and persuade people to get behind them. They're just the people that go out and get their hands dirty and everybody just automatically wants to follow them. You spent a few years working, then you decided to pack it in and go to Ethiopia for six months to work with Engineers Without Borders. What was that about? Yeah, so I had spent about seven years working for Arab. So I worked in, in Melbourne and then in San Francisco for a couple of years. And the pace of San Francisco is like nothing <laughs> you've ever seen before. And it was just very hard on, on the body and mentally. So, yeah, I, I needed to get out of that kind of space and wanted to do things that, that I felt mattered a little bit more to me. Um, so I had an opportunity come up to go to Ethiopia to 
volunteer in the refugee camps there. And, and I took that and I was there for almost six months. You describe it as the best thing you've ever done. I do. Yeah, yeah, because it puts this smile automatically on my face. Oh, I just loved it. I just really loved it. I loved being immersed in a new culture, being able to see directly that I was helping people. So while I was there, I was helping refugees to design and install solar mini grids. So we would go to the local health centre in that refugee camp. Uh, we had a group of 12 refugees and host community members who we made into solar technicians. And yeah, and I would, I would get to teach them and be immersed in, in just this different culture, this different way of being. And it was just such a rich experience for me and something that's so valuable. And I, I really recommend it to anybody who... Anybody in engineering or anybody in, in any career, really, if you can go and spend time somewhere like that, somewhere that's, you know, developing and you know, people are having a hard time of things, it really just will make you so much more grateful for everything that you have. And it's just really enriching to, to experience hardship. Are those opportunities readily available for engineers? Yeah, so Engineers Without Borders is, is always uh, helping to send engineers to places that they're needed. Um, so that would be your probably your number one organisation. While I was there, though, I was working with uh, United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees. Uh, so the UN has several different organisations within it who work in these spaces. Um, so not just in refugee camps, but other developing areas. Um, and so, yeah, all, all sorts of NGOs will take on engineers and locate them in in different places like this. How do you find those opportunities for students listening who are thinking that's a, a path forward for them? EWB definitely put things on their website. When there's opportunities, they have chapters that you can join. Most universities, I would say, probably have an EWB chapter that, that you can be a part of. Yeah, if you get into that, you'll be one of the first to know about opportunities that come up. Was the experience you had in Ethiopia the catalyst for you starting a Linga Energy Consortium? While I was there, I actually started the business. So while I was staying in the refugee camps, I first started doing an Indigenous business course run by Indigenous Business Australia. I got the information I needed to set up a company structure and I did that all from the other side of the world so that it was all set up and ready for me when I came back. And yeah, and it was, it was absolutely the inspiration for it as well because I, I knew that that's the type of work that I wanted to do but I also knew that volunteering is not a sustainable long-term way of, of working um, and supporting yourself. So I was trying to find a way to uh, long-term work on those, those projects that I valued, um, but also you know, make the money to, to keep going. So what do you do with Alinga then? What's the impact you have on the communities you're working with? What we do is try to work with mostly Indigenous communities um, and we're working on energy affordability and access. Um, so right now we have a government grant to work with six Indigenous communities in Western Australia. Um, and so we're basically looking at some of these communities are 100% powered by diesel generators and they use a thousand litres of diesel fuel every day. You know, that's a pretty easy swap out to some solar and some battery storage, which is, is going to save using all of that diesel. So yeah, that's the kind of thing we're, we're doing and, and how might renewable energy help to uh, decrease the cost of energy to residents or to community organisations and that sort of thing. We help a, a larger number of communities through pro bono work than maybe some other companies get to do. 
um, but we do work in the commercial sector to balance that so that we get the opportunity to do more of those um, helpful, impactful projects. And what do you want Alinga to ultimately achieve? I want it to be a company that stands on its own two feet, as it, as it always has. We don't have uh, any investors or anything like that. It's, it's been fully um, self-funded and, and now supports itself. I want to keep it that way and, and keep it independent, so not tied to any particular technologies or brands or anything like that. We always come at a problem with let's figure out what this unique situation is and recommend the best technologies and the best brands for that certain situation. Um, so I want it to, to continue to be independent like that. And yeah, and just to help as many people as, as we get the opportunity to help. Ruby, you've been working in this space for a very long time. In fact, you're a leader now. What do you think are the most important soft skills the younger generation coming through need to have? For me, the most important soft skills are just around communication. So there's no point being the most brilliant engineer that there is unless you can communicate your findings to somebody. Um, so it's always really important that we're putting things into reports and they could be aimed at people who don't have a technical background. You will struggle, you will be limited in the jobs that you can get if you can't also communicate things in a way that non-technical people can understand them. And so in terms of communication then, that's that's verbal, it's written, it's, it's just all-encompassing, they just need to be good right across the board? Pretty much, even though being able to create diagrams that fully explain what you, you're trying to do. So sometimes it is difficult to do things in a written format or, or a verbal format, but a diagram can really easily get across what you're trying to say. Um, and there are people who are fantastic at putting their thoughts of what's going on in their brain into a diagram. And there are people who, who aren't so great at that. And I would say if you can just work on that part of communicating things and you can practice on your friends and family, right? I, I used to give presentations to, to friends and family um, before, I, before I gave them um, at school. And if, if friends and family can understand them, then you're doing a really great job. So that's what I'd say, just communication. What's some advice you can hand over to students listening who want a career in engineering? I would say really try to be proactive. I mentioned before that I felt pretty unprepared going from university into the workforce. I didn't know what kind of jobs there were out there. I didn't know what was required for those jobs. Uh, so my biggest piece of advice is, firstly, if you can get an internship, get an internship. I was uh, not confident enough to seek out doing an internship. Um, I didn't think that I'd have anything to offer a company you know, that, that was a really big mistake. So I, I could have missed out on a lot of opportunities and I could have not gotten into Arab because of that. Um, so, you know, please do go for internships, find, find those, seek those out. Um, so you'll get so many skills that are incredibly valuable. And then a lot of companies will take on graduates from their existing interns. Uh, so it, it really gets your foot in the door and it makes a huge difference. Um, and I'd also say either picking up things from that internship or by your own research, start to look into things like the standards that might be applicable to the the job that you're planning to go into. Uh, so we didn't really focus on electrical standards for buildings at my university because we're also focused on power systems, large-scale power systems. And I ended up going into building services and I'd never picked up the Australian standards that related to them and the people I worked with sort of expected that I had. 
so I felt a little bit behind because I hadn't done that. Um, so I'd definitely say seek out the standards and, and get yourself into some CAD training as well. Ruby Heard, thank you very much for sitting down and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. Applying for internships and doing your own research on the jobs you actually want is great advice when starting out your career. As Ruby explains, taking up these opportunities while still studying allows you to gain real-life experience and get a foot in the door. It's important for students to seek out internships, learn from experts and work hard to achieve their goals. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, Assault Studios production.